hello. Welcome back to another episode of Leftist Labor History. My name is Nate, and I'm the host. So this time we're going to look at the beginnings of what many people call the labor movement, and uh, we're going to go up through the Great Depression. We're going to cover a lot. Um, but let's start, let's pick it back up at eight, in 1886. So last time we talked about the Haymarket Affair, which happened in May of 1886. And by December of that same year, the American Federation of Labor is going to form. This is the first big labor federation in the United States. And this forms as a response to the Knights of Labor. It actually kind of, the impetus kind of comes when uh, there's a, a cigar makers union that has a conflict with a Knights of Labor uh, union local. And it, it gets these guys thinking and they say, we should start an alternative to these radical Knights of Labor that has a, uh, a craft union philosophy. So the craft union um, organizing principle here is that you organize with people who are in skilled, quote-unquote, skilled trades. Um, this is kind of the, the original model for labor organizing, is, is craft unions, craft guilds. Um, and what it means is you organize the people who are your, your, your colleagues only. You're not going to organize everybody in your workplace. The AFL with its craft union philosophy is going to organize people who are generally better off. So you think about, you know, in the late 1880s, who, or, I mean, you know, throughout the 20th century, who are the people who are in these skilled trades? Um, They're largely white men. Typically speaking, though, in not every case, this is going to be a more conservative labor organizing. Um, Now, I say typically because when you have a large labor federation like the AFL is going to grow to become, that doesn't mean that there aren't radicals in in the AFL. The organizational structure is, is a federation which is comprised of different internationals. And then each international has their union locals organized under their, um, you know, their international charter. And even on the, even at the union local level, you can have uh, the local leadership can be of a particular political stripe. and And the membership or the rank and file can be, you know, different. Right, so you don't ever have a heterogeneous, or you don't ever have a homogeneous labor federation. AFL is never going to be, you know, only going to have this one type of worker. But generally speaking, it is. Um, it does have a craft union philosophy. It doesn't have any prohibitions against organizing with black workers, but. What happens is there aren't a lot of black skilled, again, quote unquote, skilled workers who are going to be organizing under the AFL. And by the time you get to the 1920s, and I'll, and I'll 
talk about this, but um, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is an all-black union, it takes them a decade to get the to get recognized as a full-fledged international uh, under the AFL. So, you know, they give lift lift service to this idea of not being racist, but in effect, um, the the AFL, meaning at the, at the leadership of the Federation at that level, racism persists. This is run by white men. Uh, and this is during the Jim Crow era. Also, when we talk about craft unionism, going back, if you watch my introduction, I read uh, just some short quotes from Marx where he, he criticizes the, the trades unions in England uh, during the 18, it would have been in the 1860s, I think. But he, he criticizes these unions as, as being vulnerable to being absorbed into the power structure itself, right? So leftists will, will criticize this kind of craft unionism because their whole point is they want to become part of the political structure because then they get more power and more money as workers, Right, so craft unionism is not going to be a vehicle for revolution, generally speaking. So now let's let's take a trip out to the Rocky Mountains, to the western U.S., um, where I live, close to where I live. So in the 1890s, a a radical union, well didn't start off radical, but quickly becomes um, this radical union called the Western Federation of Miners. Mining is a dangerous career, and particularly in the Wild West. So it's possible that if you think about mining in the West, you think about the California Gold Rush, perhaps. Um, you think about this idea of... of prospector and he's this plucky old guy and he's out there panning for gold and he's got his pickaxe over his shoulder um maybe a mule if he's lucky and he's gonna find a gold mine and strike it rich and become rich and that basically happened once um that you know there was like a f maybe a few guys who found a gold mine right so uh the the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in 1848 kicked off the California Gold Rush. And, you know, it takes about 30 minutes for the big money to actually get invested in that. And they go up and buy up everything that could possibly have gold. So you get this romanticized idea of, you know, the lone prospector and mining for precious metals in the West. And it is, it's not the reality for most people, right? So the reality is you have these big money operations and they are just running these mines on a shoestring to, to the, you know, much to the detriment of the safety of their workers. A lot of their workers are immigrants from Europe or from Asia, but the conditions in mines are 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 brutal um you know they're using child labor so 
children being physical, physically small can do some jobs in a mine better than full-grown adult men. Um, and of course, that's not safe for like a 10-year-old to be, you know, messing around with mine carts filled with ore. So that's a problem. Um, and you get tons of mining accidents, right? You get all sorts of collapses of the tunnels. When we talk about coal, and there's a lot of coal, you know, there's coal mining in West Virginia, of course. And there's a lot of coal mining out in the West as well. Coal is very dangerous if you are not careful. Reason being, so coal dust, I mean, people are familiar with the idea of black lung. So the long, a long-term effect of inhaling coal dust is this debilitating lung disease. Another thing about coal dust is it is very flammable. So you have guys down there and they're digging up coal, kicking up all this dust, and if you're not careful, you make a spark and there's an explosion and the tunnels collapse. And hundreds of people died at a time during these coal mining accidents. So in addition to the danger of mining, there is also just rampant labor abuse. Again, these, I mean, these mines are out in the middle of nowhere, you know, with a, which, uh, with a largely immigrant workforce, you got a lot of people who don't have a, a support network in the, the place that they're at. So some of the abuses were, you know, long days, right? People work long days, they get tired. Um, they start to make mistakes and that gets people killed, uh, right? So another safety issue there, in addition to just the working long, hard days is, is hard and tiring. Um, you've also got companies that are paying their employees in script. So they're not giving you currency. They're saying, okay, here's you know credit for however many goods in the company store where the prices are all inflated and they basically are giving their livelihood back over to the company that is running the mine and, and they're ripping them off both in, both in paying them in, in script and also ripping them off at the company store. Um, and another issue is the way that miners are paying them. So a lot of unions are organizing around the idea of getting paid for so-called dead work. And dead work is, is anything that doesn't produce tonnage, right? So you're getting paid by how much you're getting your your how much material you're getting out of the mine, whether it's ore or coal. And you're not getting paid for doing things that improve the the safety of the mine shaft that you're working in, like shoring up, you know, the 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 um, shoring up the, the supports or cleaning or doing anything like anything except for producing tonnage, you're not getting paid for um, because you're getting paid. Basically, you bring up your mine cart and they weigh it and they say, oh, this weighs this much. And here's your rate for how much you produced. And a lot of times the the way the, so the person operating the scales is employed by the company. So he's going to rip you off every chance he gets because that's his job. That's what he's getting paid to do. I've heard of guys estimating the weight of the cart by sight, right? So you're not even placing it on a scale. You're, you know, you're just looking and 
Uh, that looks like about a quarter ton of coal. Here you go. Here's your script. You're going to go to the company store and get ripped off. Um, a really raw deal for a lot of a lot of these workers. And so the Western Federation of Miners begins to organize and they are pissed. They are very angry. They know that they are getting screwed over and and organizing is, is kind of their only recourse. Uh, the governments, you know, most of the state governments are friendly to the mine owners. And so they're not going to have a lot of recourse to the law. Um, well, okay, first, so, so the power of unionism during this time is becoming strong enough that companies are, are starting, companies are taking this seriously and they're responding. And one way that they're responding, and this is particularly for, um, this is, this is aimed more at the kind of AFL craft union crowd, especially in the East where, you know, it's less of kind of this ramshackle mining operation like you see in these, in these towns in the West. But in the 19 uh, teens, you, you start seeing this philosophy of welfare capitalism being articulated. And, uh, so this contemporary idea of, of corporate welfare, this is not what we're talking about. Corporate welfare today kind of refers to this idea that the government is giving welfare to these, to massive corporations in the form of subsidies, tax subsidies, and so on. But welfare capitalism is different. And what it means is, it's the idea that capitalism is going to take care of its workers which sounds great, right? But it's actually, it's the whole purpose is to thwart unionizing and it is to prevent um, the federal government in the era of progressivism from hiking their taxes and trying to provide for the social, social welfare uh, through taxes and, and federal programs. So welfare capitalism is the idea that like, oh, hey, we'll give you benefits, we'll give you a pension, we will, um, you know, have events and we'll, we'll start a basketball league for you and we'll have a doctor that you can go to that is just for the company. As long as you, you know, don't join a union, right? We're going to treat you good in the hopes that you don't join a union because we don't want you unionizing. We don't want to lose that control over our workforce. A lot of companies started their own unions or their own versions of unions. And these were, you know, the employees association. And this is the idea that like, hey, you don't need to join this outside union. We have a union right here in the company that you can join and then you get a union. But of course it's controlled by the company. So it is, it is not going to be antagonistic to capital at all. Um, and that's what, that's what the company wants. Welfare capitalism tended to, you know, promise better things than what they provided. And a lot of people unionized anyway. Um, but at least, it, at least it was trying to, so that was like kind of like the carrot. So if you have a carrot and a stick approach, which I'm, I'm speaking of, of kind of capitalism as a system here. So that's the carrot and that's being offered to, you know, you're more, you're, you're kind of better well-represented workers. The stick approach is, is uh, 
the company town. And the company town is is kind of like the the dystopian uh, version of welfare capitalism. And it and it's basically like, hey, we're gonna build you a town. We're gonna build your your lodgings. And we're gonna put you up in this in this mining town. But on the condition, right, like when your boss not only has control over your job, but also your housing, you 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 especially have to listen to the what the boss says. And so this kind of exercise of power, this is not lost on anybody, right? And bosses will evict people. Bosses will evict families for joining uh, unions or trying to start a union. There are also yellow dog contracts, which is basically just a contract that you know many employers during this period would require that their employees sign saying, I'm not going to join a union, right? So you sign that contract and if you join a union, you, you lose your job and your housing, you're right, if you're in a company town. Okay, so we've got Oh, and then another way that companies would break unions was, I mentioned this, I touched on this, but hiring strike breakers. So bringing in a whole crew of guys, and a lot of times these are immigrants, um, and saying, well, you may be on strike. Well, you, now you've lost your job because I've got these other guys who are willing to work. And... And and that gets that gets violent, right? If you cross a picket line as a scab, it's going to get violent. Typically speaking, and then that's when the police and the Pinkertons and the National Guard come in, supposedly to keep the peace, but really they're suppressing the strike. And that's kind of how it goes. Um, okay, so. So in 1903-1904, we have what are called the Colorado Labor Wars. So when we talk about militant unionism, a lot of unions during this time are, are literally militant. Um, the Colorado Labor Wars was a series of strikes, and uh, there were a few bombings. There were some strike breakers killed. There were some mine employees killed. Uh, there was a there was a plot to derail a train. This is the era of the Pinkertons. So there was a, a, a security agency called the Pinkerton Agency, and these and these people were these guys were these were thugs. They were spies who would spy on labor unions, and you know, and they would they would beat up strikers. You also had the National Guard getting called in to put down strikes. Um, and, and so the National Guard comes in during these Colorado labor, labor wars. Um, so this is, this is actual, this is really militant, right? This is actual militancy that's, that's happening. And the Western, Federation, the Western Federation of Miners becomes uh they they adopt a socialist ideology they adopt an ideology or a philosophy of of overthrowing the wage labor system itself right so they're revolutionaries the wfm meets in chicago in 1905 for their annual conference and they end up starting the industrial workers of the world so the wfm had already adopted 
industrial unionism. In contrast to, so industrial unionism is more like what the Knights of Labor were doing, which which is just means organizing the whole workplace. You're not just organizing the other people who share your craft. So they adopt this philosophy of industrial unionism and the industrial workers of the world takes that farther and they are a general union. So a, a general union means absolutely anybody can, or, can, can join it. You don't have to be part of the same workplace to join the IWW. Um, their nickname is the Wobblies, by the way. So if I refer to them as, as Wobblies, that just refers to the industrial workers of the world. And their slogan is one big union. Their ideal is to organize all the workers of the world into one big union. And then their goal after that is this kind of syndicalist vision, which means, you know, complete worker democracy. You have complete worker control over all the industries in, in, in the world. Kind of more, it tends along tends to be more of an anarchist philosophy than like a communist, um, Leninist kind of philosophy. But this is definitely informed by, you know, at this point, you've got people who are informed by Marx and informed by anarchism, um, you know, th th theorists from continental Europe. Even though, also too, right? This is, this is, again, kind of like the Knights of Labor. This is a this is a pretty, you know, organic, American, homegrown kind of movement. And Big Bill Haywood kind of had this uh, line about, you know, I'm not educated by Marx. I'm educated by the marks on my body from, you know, fighting with, with company owners or whatever. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But the idea is, is you know, this is this is this kind of fundamentally American movement. So the Colorado labor wars of 1903 and 1904 are a prelude to the Colorado coal field wars of 1913 and 1914. And these, this gets really ugly, right? Kind of kicks off in this town called Ludlow and there's a coal mine there. The mine is owned by the Rockefeller Company. And to break this strike, people with machine guns just open fire on the strikers. And that's the Ludlow Massacre kills, you know, something like uh, 20 or 30 people. But that kicks off a series of actual battles between the miners and the National Guard, which goes on for, you know, into 1914. And the total cost of life during all of these, you know, skirmishes between these armed miners and the National Guard is uh, as high as, as 200 people. Um, so this is like, this is, this is actually a miniature war. This is like a series of battles. So when, you know, again, when we talk about militant unions during this, this period, this is actual life or death stuff. This is People are going into battle over this kind of thing. To make this even more outrageous, I mean, beyond the fact that the company fired machine guns on a picket line 
is the fact that some of the demands from these strikers were were just demands for the company to follow the law, right? So by this time, script being paid in company script was illegal. There was an eight-hour workday in place, and some of the miners' demands were, "Hey, we want you to actually, you know, follow the law on this stuff." And the company said, "No. Instead, we're going to, we're going to fight you. We're going to kill you." So to go back to the last episode where I talked about the Industrial Reserve Army, the Marxist idea of the Industrial Reserve Army. So now capital is forming a lot of ways to control the workplace, to control the workforce, right? So beyond controlling the the supply and demand of the labor market, the uh, the capitalist economy is developing these ways to to combat unionism. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to violence. And, and the state, for the most part, there are, there are, you know, a couple of exceptions where in, you know, in the early 20th century where you get a pro-union governor, um, you know, a pro-labor uh, state government or federal government when we come to the New Deal, and they're going to use the state to defend labor, but for the most part, company owners have a direct line to the governor who has a you know who controls the national guard, and they're going to call in a military force to put down strikes. Right. So violence is is this kind of trump card that capitalists have access to at any given time. And I mean, by the way, right? It goes with kind of goes without saying that. The Rockefellers don't. The Rockefeller Company doesn't doesn't really face consequences for mowing people down with machine guns, though it doesn't. There are a lot of people who are outraged about this when word gets around, and this is again. This is in the progressive era. People are starting to be focused on workplace abuses. Um, you know, Upton Sinclair and the and the muckrakers are exposing the the sordid underbelly of you know meat processing as in Sinclair's novel The Jungle, etc. The you know journalists are kind of exposing these workplace abuses and people are getting upset about it. Um and so you know Rockefeller killing people, killing strikers is not is not doesn't look good. It's it's not good optics, as they say. This is just to say that, you know, Capital has, capital can always rely on violence at the end of the day, though, right, there is, again, there's the idea of the dialectic. The superstructure wants to believe that capitalism is not violent. So whenever you call in, you know, the Pinkertons and break a bunch of people's skulls, that, that contradiction between the base and the superstructure becomes more apparent anyway right so this they're, they're you know capital is kind of limited as to how much violence they can actually enact unless and this gets us to the next this is a this is a very key weapon in capital's arsenal so if you are able to to create a, a subgroup, a cultural or racial or ethnic subgroup 
that people don't care about or that people actively wish violence on, you don't really suffer all that much from being violent against them. So I want to talk about imperialism and race and ethnicity. A lot of white workers are going on strike to oppose integration or to oppose, you know, any kind of uh, any kind of raise in wages for black workers. And this is common enough that it has a term. It's called a hate strike. And this is going to continue through the Jim Crow era into the New Deal era, into the 40s. Labor unions in the South are, are white. They're for white people, largely. But a lot of Southern black people do not like labor unions because they associate organized labor with a bunch of racist white people um, and hate strikes and, and so on. What's interesting is that during this, so as, as we get into the 1900s and the 19-teens, um, so the Ku Klux Klan is going to come back in the 19-teens, but the Klan during this time period is, is anti-black, for sure, but they are also very anti-union, and they are anti-immigrant. And a lot of the European immigrants that are coming over during the late 1800s are coming from places uh, that are largely Catholic or largely Jewish. And so unions and communists and anarchists and Jewish people and Catholics, this all kind of gets rolled up into this big ball of bigotry. And this... The Klan is targeting their hatred at, 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 at all of this. And so communism and unionism and black people, this all kind of becomes conflated, right? So even though you've got in the southern U.S., a lot of labor unions are not letting black people organize at all. But the Klan is pushing this idea and, you know, far, the far right is pushing this idea that that black people are, are communists and communists are are on the side of black people, which is, I mean, communists are some of the only white folks who organize with black people during this time. So there kind of is that kernel of truth here, but this is all getting wrapped in and this idea of, of immigrants and Catholics being, you know, part of this plot for the Pope to take over their good American values and, and anti-Semitism is rampant. By the time we get to World War One, we've got the first Red Scare in, in full bloom. And what that means is you've got you've got these new laws, you've got sedition and and um, you've got espionage acts passed. And uh, Eugene Debs, who was the 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 most popular uh, socialist candidate for president um, in U.S. history, he runs from from jail in the 1920 election because he's in jail for sedition. Because during World War One, right, quote unquote sedition, in World War One, he he recommended the people oppose the draft and, and not you know not deploy to this 
pointless, stupid war in Europe. You've got you've got a red scare happening. You've got anti-black and anti-immigrant bigotry happening, and it and it doesn't it it's not a perfect it doesn't perfectly overlap, but it does feed into each other, you know, quite a bit. This culminates in Red Summer of 1919, and this is. So-called Red Summer. Um, this was a wave. This is this is a wave of, of pogroms against black people across the country. Lots of black people were targeted and and beaten up and you know driven out of their homes, etc. Lynched. Um, and this is happening. This is in the north, in the west, in the in the south, everywhere. And one of the kind of inciting so basically, one of the things that is contributing to this is during the war, in the you know, in the brief time when the U.S. was involved in World War One, all the white people were, you know, the white men were going to be were being deployed, and this opened up some limited employment opportunities for black people. But when the white people come back, when the white soldiers come back, then black people are out of a job. They have this. They had had this opportunity that's been that's been yanked away from them, and white people, as has been the case whenever black people have made an advance, there's a white backlash, a racist white backlash, and so these tensions come to a head, and there is violence across the country during that summer of of 1919, and the red summer is evocative of blood, but it also is is you know, it it also kind of brings to mind the idea of of, of reds, of, of communist red. And that's something that is playing into the way that, you know, white people are looking at black people and unions and especially radical unions. So by the time we get to 1925, we get the the start of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. So if you are a a well-off white person in 1925 and you're going to travel somewhere you're going to take a Pullman train um, you're going to take a Pullman sleeping car and these are these kind of like nice swanky uh, passenger train cars that you can sleep on and you're going to have a porter and the porter is going to be a black man um, you know this is right this is Jim Crow this is the era of segregation there are black jobs and white jobs and being a sleeping car porter is a black job. And uh, A. Philip Randolph in 1925 starts this union. So Randolph is interesting for a few reasons. One is that he has a, a magazine called The Messenger, and it's a socialist magazine. Um, he's a socialist. and. You know, during the 19-teens, there were editorials in in The Messenger talking about how what's important is class. Not black people, not white people. You know, we are working people. By the time he gets the BSCP up and running, he begins to change his tune and starts to see the, the, the benefits of a civil rights organizing approach. Right, so Randolph is going to be a key figure in the civil rights movement. He is going to be organizing, you know, through unionism, the idea that black people should have the same 
political rights as white people. And this is in contrast to uh, Booker, Booker T. Washington, who's a contemporary, who's saying, you know, hey, let's compromise, give us jobs, and we won't ask for anything more than that. And Randolph says, fuck that noise. We, we are, we, you know, we deserve equal standing. We are, we are people. And he, is, he points to this relationship of, you know, he's, he points to the, the fact that, that these porters, these black men, are in a servile position to white men and points out that this is, this is really a, a replication of the master-slave kind of revel, uh, relationship. Randolph is interesting because most people had never heard of him, and he was a massively influential figure um, for these reasons. So, uh, so that's in, so that starts in 1925, and it's and the the BSCP is not going to get full full status in the AFL until 1935, right? So that speaks to so so Randolph is fighting labor. He's he's fighting this internal battle within labor, this labor federation, and trying to get recognized, trying to get recognition for his union because it's a union union of black men, right? So he's fighting capitalists and he's also fighting fellow unionists. Um, so let's jump back in time. Let's go back to 1899. So this is, so this is sometimes called the imperial period. Um, historians have have shied away from that term because it's not, this is really a continuation of, of expansionist, uh, imperialist policies of the United States going back into the, you know, first half of the 1800s, beyond that into the 1700s. This is the period when the United States fights Spain. And um, I believe the war ends in 1901. Um, the Spanish-American War, and the U.S. defeats Spain and claims Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, which were formerly Spanish territories. The U.S. says these are our these are our territories now. These are our colonies now. But when it comes to actually holding territories and colonies, this is an awkward proposition for Americans. So you have people who right the American national identity is is the scrappy underdog who threw off the yoke of tyranny. You know, America is not an empire. We, we defeated empire. We defeated the idea of empire. This is, this is a part of, of who Americans think they are. And so the idea of having colonies doesn't sit right with people in that regard. There's also opposition from, um, from, from farmers. So agricultural interests in the in the in the continental U.S. don't want to compete with sugar plantations in Cuba and the Philippines, and so this becomes a divisive topic. So basically, the United States doesn't know what to do fully with these colonies. Typically, the model is to exploit their natural resources, and the United States does that, but. An interesting thing starts to happen in the in the twenties and thirties, which um, kind of foreshadows 
what is going to be called neocolonialism by the 1960s. So neocolonialism is the idea that you have a colonial relationship economically where a, a, a formal colonial relationship used to exist. You're still going to exploit these, these other countries, but you're going to exploit them uh, for natural resources. You're also going to exploit them for labor. Bring all this up because this has bearing on labor, particularly in California and on the West Coast. So we talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act. A lot of Chinese immigrants in the mid-1800s came over to the West, you know, through the West Coast of, of the United States, North America, found work in the railroads, especially. And the big labor victory was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Well, you know, if you watched the last episode, you know that that didn't, that didn't, preserve any jobs for white people. What happened was a lot of the jobs that Chinese immigrants were, were performing were now taken by Japanese immigrants. So it's not, it's not the white union members who now have more jobs because they were racist, racist against Chinese people. You just have a new pool of immigrants that you're going to pull from. So white people are happy with that for a little while, and then Japanese people start buying land. And that's a no-no. The American dream is not for Asian people, it's for white people. California bans Japanese people from owning land. So in 1907, President Teddy Roosevelt works out the so-called gentleman's agreement with Japan, where both countries agree to limit immigration from Japan. And then that's formalized later. So that's the second wave of Asian immigration. The third wave comes after 1924. Um, well, in between, you know, after the gentleman's agreement, and then especially after 1924, and this is with Filipinos. So the Philippines is a territory of the United States which happened after the Philippine-American War, in which as many as 750,000 Filipinos died as a result of the war, a large portion of that coming from disease brought on by the conditions of, of war and you know United States Navy being in the Philippines and, and destroying people's livelihoods and so on. So at the conclusion of the Philippine-American War, in which the Philippine, you know, the Philippines mounted a, a, a resistance to the U.S. In, in not wanting to be colonized. The United States prevailed, and they installed uh, leadership that was friendly to the United States and U.S. business interests. So in the 19-teens, in particular, a lot of Filipinos were being recruited by uh, plantation owners in Hawaii, not yet part of the United States, but there are, uh, you know, Western colonizer business interests in Hawaii, and they are using uh, Japanese workers. And Japanese workers unionize, and so they bring in Filipino strike breakers, and then the Filipinos unionize, and so on. But there's this large population of Filipino workers that have been recruited to Hawaii, 
and they figure out or they you know they learn that they can make more money in California. So now we get the third wave of Asian immigration into the West Coast. And after 1924, the United States passes an immigration act which restricts a lot of immigration. So it restricts all Asian immigration. It restricts immigration from uh, from parts of Europe. Filipinos are still able to immigrate because they are American nationals. They, the Philippines is a territory of the United States. So a lot of them come in to take low-wage migrant jobs, largely in agriculture. And um, Californians, Californians decide that this is an invasion, uh, especially when you know young Filipino men start talking to white women and these are this is largely right these these uh waves of immigration these are largely young men whether it's chinese japanese or filipino these are young men and a lot of them um you know a lot of these filipino guys they're they're bachelors right they're they're young dudes and they're looking for companionship um so californians begin in the 1920s to resent the presence of Filipinos. And the California, the California Federation of Labor takes an outspoken stance against uh, Filipino immigration. This is something, by the way, I should mention this is something that I studied. I lived in the Philippines as a Mormon missionary for two, two years. I, I still can almost kind of speak Tagalog. So I've I got an interest in the Philippines. I've I studied this in my master's program. This is not like some important chapter of U.S. labor history, but I think that this is I think this is really interesting, and I think it's at the intersection of imperialism and unionism and uh, and and racism. And I think there are lessons to be learned from kind of puzzling out the awkward role of of the United States in relationship to the Philippines and Filipino migrant laborers. So anyway, so the California Federation of Labor comes out and says, hey, we support Philippine independence, which normally you think, I mean, there are Filipinos in the Philippines who are nationalists who want to become independent. And you wouldn't necessarily think that like racists would join their cause. But the reason being is that if the Philippines is independent, then you can end immigration. Um, and so newspapers start to publicize any kind of incident between white people and Filipinos. And I mean, Filipinos are always on the re receiving end of this violence. But the point is to say like, oh, this Filipinos are just, you know, they're incompatible with American culture, they're not assimilating or whatever. They're really just making up stereotypes on the fly um, that, you know, just for reasons to hate uh, these Filipino workers. And then what happens is uh, by the end of the end of the 1920s, you you get violence. So a young man is killed, a young Filipino man is killed. And it's kind of like this flashpoint and just kind of, you know, the culmination of all this violent rhetoric. And what's interesting is 
So this is one newspaper that's been, you know, saying, oh yeah, we support Philippine independence. You know, Filipinos don't have a place here. And then when it's looking like that's about to happen, then they say, then they're like, oh, well, white people don't want to work these jobs. Who's going to pick our lettuce? And it's, Right, so it's it's the exact same it's the same newspaper over a period of years, which is taking this paradoxical stance. We don't want Filipino we don't want Filipino people here, but we we want their labor. We don't want the people. We don't want them part of our community. We want them to just to pick the lettuce and then and then leave. And that's. And that is, I mean, it, it looks like a paradox, right? So if we're examining capitalism and asking, you know, does capitalism want immigration or not? Well, the answer is, is capitalism wants human beings to be reduced to little labor machines. It wants the labor of humans and it doesn't want the human. It doesn't want people to have community ties it doesn't want people to do any doesn't want people to do anything but eat sleep and work because humans are social creatures that person's going to start to to build social ties and that makes it harder for capitalism to extract labor out of them so when the California Federation of Labor is drumming up all this racism against Filipinos they are helping to create a colonial subject that is able to be denied for a period of time all of the human social needs that capitalism doesn't want people doesn't want fulfilled because it's it's costly right and this this is in this is in this this is in keeping with the idea of marx's industrial reserve army you keep people on the margins and immigration so racism and immigration laws they keep people on the margins. They keep people, they keep labor under the table, so to speak. So if you need that labor, you can go get it. And if you, do, you don't want too much labor in the labor market, you say, oh, these people don't belong here. These people are undocumented. And you can get labor, during this time especially, you can get white labor unions on your side if you're capitalists. To say, yeah, we don't want people here. They're taking our jobs. And like, yeah, they're taking your jobs. Yeah, sure. Right? The, con the conflict is always between labor and capital. White people, white capitalists don't give a shit who they exploit. They will exploit white people. But white workers, a lot of times, have white solidarity with white capitalists. And that's something that that needs to go away that's gonna that's a losing formula has been and will be forever um anyway i think i got through it all and the battery's about to die so thanks for joining i might have to do a, a little bit wrap up or uh you know further analysis or explication but if not Hey, we are gonna we're gonna run up against the uh, Great Depression next time, and that's gonna be an exciting period. So remember to come back and watch that. Thanks for joining.